Let us now prepare our hearts for the reading of God's Word. Today, it comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hand of the robbers? The expert of the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, now I have the privilege of introducing our guest preacher. Uh, Andrew Fike is, uh, has been coming to the Vine for about, I think, a year. He and his family and Katie and their two wonderful kids uh, Andrew's a neighbor. He's a wonderful guy. He works for a place called LifeWorks that uh, I believe helps with youth um, who have been in the foster care system. And he graduated uh, from Fuller Seminary with an MDiv. And so it is just going to be a special treat for us to have him here today. So let's welcome Andrew. Instead. Good to be a neighbor of Ted Thulin, I can tell you that much. Actually more um, his teenage daughters that like to babysit, that's the, really the best part. Good afternoon, it's good to see you guys. Um, what a privilege this is for me to have this opportunity to speak with you all. Um, for those, as, as Ted said, um, my wife and our kids and I, we've been attending the Vine for about a year. But really, I like to believe that my introduction to the Vine happened about 14 years ago, which sounds probably a bit odd to most of you. It was this coming August, 14 years ago, that I moved into my freshman all-male dorm at Baylor University and met the legendary Mark Charbonneau. I think we have a picture here. There we are. Look at that flowing hair, all its glory. Um, we actually played, that was pitch and putt at Butler Park. I came in fourth place, Mark came in first, and Jason Johnson was also in that picture. 
Mark was quite a legend at Baylor, and no, he was not a freshman with me. Mark actually um, was a seminary student at Baylor at the time. And Mark made the sacrifice and the decision to live in the freshman guy's dorm. And Mark was beloved, not, not just by me, but by a whole crew of folks. Mark was, was pretty influential. Um, Mark taught me many things, um, some of which Mark taught me how to turn the Baylor campus into an 18-hole golf course. Mark taught me how to juggle hot coals. Um, Mark took us on many camping trips, and he even saved my friend um, from drowning in the Colorado River one time. Um, there's, there's a lot of stories to share about Mark, but um, Mark also led a Bible study with us and led us in worship. And, and one of the things I um, noticed in Mark was that Mark could relate to absolutely everybody. And it wasn't just the spiritual that wanted to hang out with Mark. It was, it was anyone um, wanted to spend time with him. And something, um, I've even heard Mark reference this, is Mark takes seriously the joy of God. And truly, it's been um, such a blessing for us as we've moved back to Texas to be able to join in the ministry that he has. So from, from my experiences of hanging out with Mark and um, throughout college and high school and other experiences I had, I had a call in my life to pursue ministry. And that took me out to Los Angeles, California, where I went to seminary, and also I went to the beach all the time. For those of you who know about LA, going to the beach is a lot of time in the car, and that's a lot of traffic. And so I also worked at Starbucks in Pasadena um, to put some gas in my car. It was while attending seminary, it was while interning at my local church plant, all the good and natural things you do to become a pastor but it was in an unusual and unexpected place that I look back and I can see God pulling me towards a mission, a purpose, and towards his kingdom. The Starbucks I worked at in Pasadena was one of the busiest in town. We were on the Rose Parade route and we actually had bathrooms that were open to the public, which meant not only did we have a lot of frequent customers, but also we had a whole community of individuals experiencing homelessness that would hang out in and around our store. So every day I'd have these 10 minute breaks that I cherished and took every minute of. And I would go outside and I would sneak expired pastries and I would hang out with this crew of people. And I started to get to know them and there was one lady in particular that that stood out. Her name was Diane. I think I have a picture of Diane, there she is. Um, Diane was a remarkable lady. Diane was from Stone Mountain, Georgia. And Diane knew every person in Pasadena. She knew every security guard, every store manager. Um, And Diane was the biggest flirt you'd ever meet. (laughs) Diane would look you up and down, and she would talk about how devastatingly handsome you are with that thick southern draw. And Diane was quite a lady. Diane also was chronically homeless. And what that means is she was homeless a minimum of four or more years, and she also had a diagnosis of mental or physical health. For Diane, she had been homeless, I want to say, seven years in Pasadena. And Diane struggled with severe mental health, aging, physically alien, and mentally unstable to secure and utilize income in a meaningful way. Diane, every day, would put on her survival skills to show the world how happy she was. And every night, she would retreat to a set of bushes behind a Macy's where she lived. I would see Diane multiple times a week. Diane would come, that's at my apartment, we would have meals together. And so it came as a bit of a surprise when Diane went missing one day. Unable to find Diane, I hadn't seen her in a few months until I heard her familiar voice one day. I came to find out the city of Pasadena had housed Diane permanently. For the rest of her life, Diane 
lived in a comfortable apartment. She was visited on a regular basis by a team of social workers who would help get her to medical appointments, who would help her um, pay her bills and create a budget and access public transportation and connect to community. I was absolutely stunned. I was shocked that the city would do an act like this. But quickly, that grew to become frustration. Frustration that myself, my church, and the greater Christian community was so missing the mark in being able to assist people like Diane. It seemed like we were years behind what the city was doing. And ultimately, as someone in seminary, someone interning at a church, I mean, I was burdened by this. And it irked me so much. I look back on these years and this relationship with Diane, and I have no doubt that God revealed his kingdom to me as much on that Starbucks patio, as much on the city streets and through the city officials as I learned working for a church and attending theology class. Maybe I should have gone to the beach less. (laughs) I love that God often speaks his most powerful messages and connects to his people in unassuming ways. Today, our parable on the Good Samaritan in Luke 10 portrays a similar sentiment in that God's kingdom is revealed through unexpected characters. At the heart of this parable is the paramount question for the church and for you and I, how do you love God and how do you love others? Our parable begins with a legal expert who is testing Jesus. Now, a couple things to know about this legal expert. The first is that a legal expert, a lawyer of the time, the law was God's law for the people of Israel. And so this was someone who represented this uh, spiritual establishment. This is someone that hung out in the upper echelons of the temple. And the second thing is that it was common of this day for lawyers to sit in public squares and they would talk about the ongoings in the community and how do you interpret it? How do you read this text? How do you apply this text to what's going on today? And the third thing is, is like the Pharisees, he likely would have been pretty intimidated by this Jesus character that was so radical and was gaining momentum. So all of a sudden, he comes face to face with Jesus and he says, Jesus, how do you inherit eternal life? Knowing who he's dealing with, Jesus looks back and he says, well, you're a legal expert. You study the law. What do you say? How do you interpret it? It's like throwing a softball to a major league baseball player. Excited, he says, oh, let's go to Deuteronomy 6. He says, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul. And then he adds a little bit of Leviticus in there, and he says, and also you must love your neighbor as yourself. Great answer. Do this and you will live. We have a perfect conclusion to our sermon today. But that wasn't enough for this lawyer. He was not looking just for the self-satisfaction. What he really wanted is he wanted to pin Jesus He wanted Jesus to say something that would ruin his reputation. And so he asked this. He says, okay, but who who is my neighbor? This question for us today, it doesn't seem that radical. It doesn't seem that risky. But knowing what's going on in this day and age, the people of Israel, they followed a very strict law a way of becoming pure and a way of becoming clean. For them, for an outsider, for someone that didn't follow their law, that someone that didn't follow their rituals of purity and cleansing, that was a threat for them to enter their nation. What about those people who aren't like us? 
What about those people who might threaten our purity and our holiness with God? What really he's asking in this question is, how far do you extend love? Who fits within the boundaries of acceptance, of mercy, of grace? It's in loaded moments like this that Jesus loves to tell parables. And so Jesus begins with a story. And we're told there's a man and he's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho a notorious path that goes through a mountain terrain that has steep cliffs and jagged edges where robbers would hide out. It's unsurprising that a man is traveling on this road. He's caught by a robber. He's stripped. He's beaten. And he's left for dead. Now, the first person that comes up is a priest. And this priest sees the broken man and he decides to continue on his way. Fortunately, there's another person. There's a Levite Now, a Levite was someone, a Levite was one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and if you were a Levite, you were basically groomed to take over as a priest. And if you didn't quite make it into the priesthood, then you can still work in the temple. And so these two people, what they represent is spiritual authority of the day. These aren't just two individuals. What they represent and what Jesus is using them for is to talk about the system of religion at its time. This is the pinnacle This is the top evangelical leaders of our day. These is not just some two pastors. This is like the head of a denomination or the head of our largest seminary, um, completely neglecting. The two highest positions of piety and spiritual authority of their day are instantly made a mockery by Jesus in what was an obvious act of neglect. Next on the trail, we're told that there's a Samaritan traveling, and unlike the religious elites, we are told that he has pity for the wounded man. Or as some translators put it, he is moved with compassion. We're told that the Samaritan came to the wounded man. He bandaged his wounds. He used his valuable commodities to care for him. He unloaded his mode of transportation. And he entered back a city that would have been dangerous for him to enter. He then gives about two months wages to provide for this person And he never looks for reciprocity. He never looks for acknowledgement. It's almost so heroic that it's almost an over-exaggeration of mercy and care. Jesus concludes by asking the lawyer, who was the neighbor? The prideful lawyer is forced to admit the obvious answer, but he can't even call the Samaritan by name. He just can say the one who acted merciful. So a few things to learn from this and a few things to highlight. And the first is, what's the deal with the Samaritan? Why is that a big deal? Because for us today, it's hard for us to understand the dynamics of what's going on. For God to use a Samaritan in this story, Jesus is making a bold claim that God is bigger than the boundaries that people have drawn since the beginning of time. What a Samaritan Samaritan represented was someone from just north of Israel in the region of Assyria. Now, Assyria was known for not worshiping the God of Israel. Instead, they worshiped idols, and they were known for having hundreds of idols. And not just did they have these idols, but they, they had this reputation for doing lewd and heinous acts with these idols. For a people of Israel to see this person, this was a threat to their holiness and their purity and their relationship with God. 
Not just that, but in Assyria actually attacked Israel seven centuries earlier. They went into the temple and they desecrated the Holy of Holies. There's almost a justifiable holy hatred that's going on here. For Jesus to tell a story where you have the religious elites, a priest and a Levite, in the wrong, and of all people, a Samaritan doing the will of God, it would have been ludicrous and appalling to a first century listener. Again, Jesus is making a radical and risky claim. For a Samaritan to be a good neighbor, it means that God's kingdom is capable of, it's capable of including those outside our social boundaries. I wonder what this looks like for us today. And I wonder if we put limits on who we believe God can use to bring about his kingdom in this world. I know for me, I wasn't expecting God to show up through Diane or on a Starbucks patio or through a city hall movement. The second thing to draw from the Samaritan story is how we are to be a neighbor. We're told that the Samaritan was moved with compassion for this broken man. The word compassion literally means to suffer with or alongside. Authors Brian Walsh and Steve Boomer-Pettiger say of compassion, compassion is what happens when love meets suffering, when love meets the broken. In a culture that values comfort and efficiency and control, extending compassion will never match those things. It comes at a cost. And for the Samaritan, it was his commodities, it was his transportation, and it was his reputation and his living wage. As a church, as we look to a broken world, are we willing to suffer with others? Are we passing people on the trails of our lives who are broken, and are we ignoring their needs? Are we only loving other people when it's easy or convenient for us in our lives? To me, as I've been thinking about this, it's, it's reminded me of, I, I hear pastors say all the time, be careful when you pray um, for patience. Has anyone else heard that? Like, be careful when you pray for patience because um, you don't know what you're going to get. And this whole week, I've been a part of so many organizations and agencies and churches and nonprofits who have used compassion as a core value for what they do, knowing so little of what this actually means. Do we really want to suffer with or alongside? It's a hard reality for us to swallow. There's a great example of compassion within this church that I've had the privilege to observe. I think most of them are on vacation, but I know I saw at least one here today. There's five people from our church who saw in a weekly newsletter from The Vine an opportunity to mentor a local youth in the community who's aged out of the foster care system. We'll call this person Jimmy. Jimmy has grown up a life radically different, I would assume, than nearly all of us here today. Jimmy um, does not have a relationship with a majority of his family. Jimmy struggles month by month, facing the risk of homelessness and is surrounded by a group of people who face homelessness. It is not easy to hang out with Jimmy. And for this group, I can say with confidence that it has been anything but easy or delightful to have this experience. For seven months, they've struggled. They've wrestled. But week after week 
after week after week, they've shown up. There's been weeks where Jimmy didn't show up. There's been weeks where Jimmy chewed him out. There's been weeks when they've been driving Jimmy from A to B, and Jimmy has gone through a series of F words at them, putting them at risk and making them feel uncomfortable. So often, we hear from the pulpit stories of great conclusions, stories of heroic life transformation, but the reality is, is compassion, it's gritty, it's dirty, and it costs something to us. This group to this day is hoping that maybe they'll see some transformation, but as it stands, they may not. It's not what they're called to do. They're called to show up. They're called to love. They're called to be merciful and compassionate. I know that they wrestle um, if their efforts are worth it. And every time I talk to someone, I don't know what to say other than that people are always worth it. And I can't imagine what the world would look like and what our city would look like if people had the audacity and the strength to just show up when people are broken and to not ignore the amount of pain and brokenness that's in our city. So often, the story of the Good Samaritan can end here. It ends with what does it mean to be compassionate and and what does it mean that he's a Samaritan? But I really believe that the most powerful lesson from the Good Samaritan comes to fruition when we we read the next story. We're told right after this that Jesus leaves and he enters the town of Bethany where Mary and Martha live. And immediately following the parable, he's entered into the home of Martha. Now, it's up on the screen. I'm just going to kind of walk through it in my own words. But basically, as Jesus comes to this town, Martha goes out. She says, Jesus, come to my home. I'd love to host you. So Jesus comes over. And if you've ever come to my house, I can guarantee you that an hour before you came, we spent frantically time throwing kids' toys in random drawers, conquering the tower of dishes, sweeping, throwing clothes up the stairs, exchanging words, my wife and I, of anger and frustration of, why do we still have this? We get the sense that Martha is the same way. Martha is frantic. Martha is excited that she is hosting Jesus in her home. And so we're told that she's cooking, she's cleaning, she's busying herself, and she looks over, and her sister Mary is sitting in the living room with Jesus. So Martha grabs Jesus And you can just see the confidence in her voice. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all this work by myself? Tell her to help me. To which Jesus responds, I love this, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. There is need for only one thing, and Mary has chosen the better way. As soon as we're encouraged to be like the Samaritan, to go out, to be brave, to be willing to suffer with others, all of a sudden we're told, no, 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 don't be busy, don't be distracted. All you got to do is sit and listen to the word of God. Like the Samaritan story, Luke is once again shocking his first century audience with a massive cultural subversion that is difficult for us to comprehend in our day. In a time when women would not be allowed to sit at the feet of a teacher and learn, Jesus is back-to-back pulling from social outsiders to show that God's kingdom extends beyond the boundaries society and even us as a church is prone to create. As the commentator Alan Culpepper puts it, 
the power of these two stories consists not just in they exemplify the great commands to love God and to love your neighbor, but in Jesus' choice of characters to illustrate the love of neighbor, the love of God, a Samaritan and a woman. The social codes and the boundaries were clear and they were inflexible. A Samaritan would not be considered a model of neighborliness and a woman would not sit with men around the feet of a teacher. I hope today is one of the points we see and are encouraged by this radical nature that Jesus is always flipping things on its head. He's always using the unexpected person. How do we view those unexpected people? How do we empower those on the margins? But what are we to do with these juxtaposing moral conclusions? Should we heed the advice of the lawyer that we should be like the Samaritan, that we should go out and we should act compassionate, that we should suffer with others? Or should we heed the advice to Martha? Should we sit at Jesus' feet? Should we listen? Love God, love people. Which is more important? Which comes more natural for our country today? Which comes more natural for our church here, the vine? Love God or love people? Which comes more natural for you? Where do you lean on this spectrum? I'd like to lead you all in a quick exercise Don't worry, I think it's going to be pretty easy for you. I'm going to have you guys do something you've been doing your entire lives. I want you guys to breathe. So with me now, we're going to first inhale. You ready? And inhale. One, two, three. And exhale. One, two, three. I encourage you to continue this. And as you inhale, deeply feel your belly expand Maybe hold it until it starts to hurt a little bit, and then notice how good and pleasurable it is to just exhale deeply and fully. If you're feeling brave, I challenge you maybe to try inhaling three times in a row, fully and deeply. Inhale, and inhale, and inhale. Breathing is a miraculous and absolutely essential function of our life that we participate in a minimum of 20,000 times a day. Between inhaling and exhaling, which do you think is more important? For our body, this question is foolish. You cannot do one without the other. Perhaps you may have just tried. There's a pastor and an author out of Seattle named Richard Dahlstrom, and he wrote a book called O2 where he uses this metaphor of breath to show how the life of a disciple must include the inhale and the exhale. If we want to be a disciple of Christ, we must have a spiritual inhale, which is to sit at the feet of Jesus. For us to grow closer to God, we must inhale spiritually. We must connect with God. We must worship. We must seek intimacy with Jesus. We must communicate to our Lord. We must be in his word. Likewise, for us to survive spiritually, we cannot do this alone. We have to exhale. We have to be moved with compassion for the people who are on our paths. 
We have to have our hearts broken for the things that are broken in our world because that is what Jesus calls us to. I wonder what our church would look like if we could improve how we balance our spiritual inhale and our exhale. My guess is that a majority of us have spiritual asthma. A majority of us struggle with one or the other. Perhaps throughout our lifetime it goes back and forth. And my encouragement for you today is to see and acknowledge where you are. For those of you who favor inhaling, how can you increase your acts of compassion in this world? I encourage you to begin by trying to notice those in your path who are hurting. Unlike the priest and the Levite, do not ignore them. It may be a family member, it may be a coworker, it may be a stranger in our city who is suffering. Take notice of this person and listen. This open table group, one of the biggest challenges for a group of moms is to try and not tell a teenager what to do. We have to listen. Then we will know how to help someone if we can first listen and actually hear them and not come with our own agenda. I can guarantee one thing, it will not be easy to do this. If it is, then perhaps it's not the right opportunity or it's not the right act of compassion. For those of you who favor exhaling, how can you experience more intimacy with God? This is 100% me, so I feel hypocritical even making these suggestions. How can we sit at Jesus' feet? Perhaps, how can we be in the word? How can we have our passions and our thoughts and our ideas and things that fuel us be based in God's word and not just based on the news cycle? How can we pray more? How can we pray with our spouse? That's something that Mark and Ted have talked about, and it's like, yeah, I'd, I'd never do that. How do we seek accountability? How do we, maybe we're in a vine group, but maybe we just go to that vine group and we're not known because we never make ourselves known. How do we be real and authentic with people? Perhaps, how do we confess? I wonder if some of us are struggling um, to exhale when the reality is, is that we haven't inhaled. We're wondering why we don't have intimacy with God when in reality, we're not looking to the needs of this broken world and we're not involved in it. I think it's pretty cool that when God created humans, we're told that he breathed life into their nostrils. This word for breath in Hebrew is ruah, and it's the same word for God's spirit. There's something inherently sacred about breathing. It's my prayer for you today that you leave here spiritually breathing, that you can be filled with an inhale and an exhale, that you can sit at the feet of Jesus and that you can notice those in your path who are broken and be moved. Amen.